we have started into the book of Mark, okay? This is one of the Gospels that we find at the beginning of the New Testament. Um, we are walking through slowly but surely, and as we dive into it this morning, man, we're going to dive into a, a, a chunk of passage that <clears throat> we might already have our minds made up about, but I just pray today that we will be able to see this um, as Mark is teaching it, as Mark is writing it, as Mark is communicating it, and holy, hopefully as the Holy Spirit will continue to reveal it to us. This book of Mark, this gospel of Mark, was written uh, by a guy named Mark in Rome during the, the 50s and 60s uh, A.D. So we're talking like 20 to 30 years after Jesus ascends into heaven. The Christians in Rome were under some serious, serious persecution. Uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, 64 A.D., if you remember, we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, uh, the emperor, his name was Nero, he hated the Christians so much that he set fire to Rome, blamed it on the Christians, dressed the Christians up with animal skins, put them in front of wild animals so they could be eaten alive. Like, like that's, some, that's some serious anger towards a, a, a subculture, okay? Um, this is what is happening. So Mark writes this account of, God, of God's son coming to the earth to take on the sins of those who would be so that these believers would be continued uh, to, to, to walk in their faith, to uh, believe in the name of Jesus. And so, as we walk through this, Mark doesn't, like, use a lot of flowery language. A lot of times, he just cuts to the chase. And there are these two things that, that, st- that we're going to come across time and time and again as we study through this. And that is the authority of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Time and time again, we're going to hear these declarations that Jesus was and is the Son of God. And today's going to be no different. But then time and time and again, we're going to be struck with this reality that this authoritative figure, Jesus, the God-man, came not with pomp and circumstance, but he came to be a suffering servant to the point of even dying on the cross, slain for the sins of those who would believe. And so we have his authority and his mission colliding together at this thing that we call the cross. And so we're going to see this. And today we're going to see it big time. And so as we dive in this morning, if you want to go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1, my prayer for us is that we don't miss the big picture of what Mark is shouting to us today. It's easy for us to miss the big picture and focus on small, important, but small details of this picture. As I read through Mark, as I try to stay ahead of, of the preaching on Sundays, I, I stay ahead to kind of see where Mark is heading, now, I don't see a lot of intimate details i don't see a lot of flowery details we get mark gets to the point he cuts to the chase and he centers his facts around the reality of who jesus was his authority and mission and they had how they combined to bring about the redemption so in essence mark really focuses on the big picture of what's happening in the life of jesus and i think as we walk through mark it'd be for us to do the same we can get a lot of We'll, have to, we'll bring in some details from some of the other Gospels, and that's good. Mark cuts to the chase. It's like the bottom line. You know, we all struggle in a certain sense with seeing the big picture at times in life. Uh, the other day, uh, Richard and Sarah and the kids were over at our house, and it's really, really easy, if you know me well enough, uh, which Jeff does and some others do, it's really easy for me to focus on details and, and forget the bigger picture. Um, and, and, and we all struggle with this. A couple of days ago, as I was starting to say, Richard and Sarah were over at the house, 
And uh, we, we try to, you know, spend some time throughout the week praying together and, and our families, you know, just connecting uh, as we lead life journey. But Richard and I stepped outside to go out to the stuff out of the car. And this was one of those endless nights with just thousands, I mean, billions of stars, you know, and you could see them. In our neighborhood, there's no street lights. And so it was just like, man, they were just like right there, like hanging right above our face. And so we, we stared up and we're just enamored with, you know, all these stars and we're showing off our limited astronomy skills. and like, oh, did you know that? And hey, you know, all this kind of stuff, which we really don't know anything about it. But uh, we're just trying to, you know, you know what dudes do. <laughs> well, that over there is actually, you know. Um, so all of a sudden, <clears throat> a, a plane, you know, flies by. And I just had this thought, you know, I was like, you know, isn't it uh, that as human beings, we can look into this amazing sky and behold the handiwork of our creator who is so kind to give us such amazing view. And immediately when a flashing bulb connected to a piece of metal that's some six miles away, immediately that draws our attention instead of the billions upon billions of stars, the, billion, the trillions upon trillions of stars, billions of galaxies that are hundreds of light years away. It's enormous. Isn't it sad? Richard, how we can focus in on just a, a, a tiny little airplane some six miles away. And Richard's like, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Well, so we start, we just keep looking, amazement, and we forget what we went out to the car for. So, of course, our wives come out to the front porch, and they see us, you know, two grown men, you know, just gazing into the sky, and they walk out, you know, like, what are you guys doing? And so, of course, being, you know, humble men, we start to show our full knowledge of astronomy to our wives, you know, to further impress them. Uh, so they start gazing up, and as if on cue, my lovely wife says, hey, look, an airplane. Don't we all struggle with missing the big picture for the small, important things? I mean, it's pretty cool there's an airplane. But there's billions upon billions of stars right in front of our face. And it is easy, easy to miss the big picture and get focused on details. Even in our rebellion, in our turning away from God, in our sin, God's plan was to display the power of his grace, the depths of his love, and the vastness of his mercy, along with the seriousness of his justice by punishing sin and giving those who believe life through Jesus. I mean, God loves us so much that he has revealed it to us, that this love, this mercy, this justice that he has. The most loving thing that God could ever do is reveal who he is to us. That is the most loving thing. He is holy, he is just, thus he crushed his son who became sin, but then he adopts those into his family, those who have whose sin has been paid for, and raised this them into spiritual life from spiritual death. And this is the big picture of the universe. This is the big picture of this thing we call life. But we get so easily distracted. As dads, we get distracted with good things like careers, bills, health, family needs. Moms, we get distracted with the exact same thing, career, bills, family. These are things aren't evil, but they just distract us. As pastors, we get distracted with ministry needs and these things as opposed to the big scope 
of what God is doing. As young couples just getting started, just getting married, we're, 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 we get distracted with getting our careers established, getting financially independent. Like, when do we start a family? All those things, but they can become distraction as there's deals of social pressures and, and school tension and school demands and getting a job to pay for the insurance for the car so that I can drive to work to get money to pay for the insurance on the car so I can drive to work. To pay. All those things that create distractions. Nothing evil about it, but it's so easy for us to focus on the details of life and forget the big picture of life. And so in these next few minutes, we're going to continue walking through Mark. We're going to take a, a look at the next three verses. It's going to be very easy for us to miss the big picture of what's happening, especially if we've read this passage before, especially if we're familiar with this passage. So before we jump in, I'm just going to, I just want to take a time out. And I just want us to just bow our heads and just ask God, just point blank. God, help me now to not get distracted with the details of what's happening in this passage. But God, help me to see the big picture of what you're doing. Details are good. And sometimes we can focus on those so much we miss the big picture. God, as we just pause in this moment to reflect on the big picture, God, I just pray that we would not give in to the the distractions, the, the airplane at six miles away when there's Billions of stars, a hundred million light years for us to gaze into. God, help us focus and to see the big plan of what you're doing, which I think is what Mark wants to see us do as well. So, God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Mark chapter 1. We're going to right in verse 9. So, book is divided into four sections, the preparation of Jesus, his ministry in Galilee, his ministry in Jerusalem, and then the Passion Week, that is, the week of his, of his death, which we'll get to. But we're right here in the Preparation Week, and we started with the, uh, Mark 1-1, which is kind of like the title of the book. We did that two weeks ago, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last week, Richard taught on this forerunner, this John the Baptist who came to pave the way for the Messiah. But today, we're going to go ahead and start uh, looking at Mark 9, uh, Mark 1, 9 through 11. And we're just going to, if you've never been here with us or if it's been a while, we're going to read a little bit. We're going to talk about it. We're going to read a little, talk a little bit. And then we're going to close in a time of worship. So the word of God says in verse 9, it says, in those days, G- Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. These are the preparation days of Jesus's ministry. We're at, fi- we're finally, God's final Old Testament prophet is on the scene paving the way for the messiah imagine this picture with me imagine this scene all right the jordan river on the banks of the jordan river there are scores of people we don't know exactly how many were there to be baptized but what richard read last week was that the entire country of judea judea and all of jerusalem came to the banks of the jordan river i mean we're talking a lot of people in fact there were probably more people at the banks of the jordan being baptized by john than there were actually in the towns and the cities where the people actually lived and worked these people were anxiously awaiting the messiah some of them were not at all in the messiah some of them were faithful to the old testament trying looking forward to the coming messiah some of them had turned this judaism into nothing more than a, 
a religious exercise and they were experiencing uh, a, a hatred towards this idea of someone coming in the name of God. But no matter who they were, there was a bunch of people coming, tons and tons, scores of scores. And God the Father is about to place his stamp of approval on his son that we'll read about here in a second. And he wants people there to see it. He wants people there to experience He wants people there to be absolutely blown away by it. So I think it's safe to assume that hundreds of people have coming through this line, being baptized by John, hearing John preach about the coming Messiah, watching him baptize, seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy right before their very eyes. But when Mark says in those days, he's talking about these days where people are crammed around banks and there's more people there like i said than probably in the cities and the towns but this is something big something big is happening this isn't some sort of country podunk you know village idiot screaming all sorts of crazy things and this is a part of the eternal plan of god to rescue man from their sin and god is wanting this to make a mark on history and this is huge and so mark He doesn't use a lot of flowery language. He just cuts to the truth, and he says, Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark flies past all sorts of details that that we get in some of the other Gospels that we're not going to talk about here. And he flies to the reality of Jesus being baptized. So what's the big picture that we need to be sure not to miss? God the Father had gathered together a huge crowd of people for his seal of approval to be stamped on his son, Jesus Christ. This sinless, perfect son of his is now standing in the midst of this crowd who had come to John, identifying their need for their sins to be purified. John was preaching, you repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And just scores of people have been coming to the Jordan to symbolically be washed clean from their sins. John had been dunking people right after left, right after left in this water, symbolically washing their sins away. Now, this is symbolic because the sin wasn't truly washed away until it was placed on Jesus at the cross. But it is symbolically being washed away. And now Jesus is in their presence. So this river has symbolically filled with the sin of these people who have been come to be washed away, kind of like an Old Testament um, purification through, uh, through sacrifice. You know, they would slaughter a lamb, slaughter a, an animal, and that would temporarily wash their sin, but it didn't really remove it. That's what Jesus did. He's the Lamb of God. So this symbolic ritual is symbolically washing the sin of the people off into this river. And so this river is symbolically filthy with all of the sin of this mob, this crowd of people who seek repentance and seek to be pure. And the sinless son of God, he comes and walks out into the middle of this symbolically filthy river, filthy from the sins that have been symbolically washed away in their baptism. And Jesus, this sinless son of God, now stands in the midst of this filth. Can you see that? Can you kind of picture that? Like get the bank, get the river. You got all this, these people, it's just a crowd, this mob, and this river polluted by the sin, symbolically, of the people that John's been baptizing. And Jesus is now standing there. 
He is standing where sinners have stood. He is standing in this river. But Jesus doesn't just stand there. He goes to John and says, I want you to baptize me. Now, some of the other Gospels, which we're not going to get into, there's some dialogue that goes back and forth between John and Jesus. But the short end of it is Jesus says, no, John, you're going to baptize me right now to fulfill all righteousness. So John does. So picture this. The sinless son of God is who is completely holy, completely righteous, as God the Father is holy and righteous. He is being taken hold of by John the baptizer, and he is being placed symbolically into this filthy water that symbolically is polluted by the sins of the people who have been baptized by John. John has been baptizing, as I've been saying, to symbolically wash these sins away. And now Jesus is being baptized by John to symbolically identify with this sin, to symbolically take on this sin that these sinners have been washed free of, to take on the putrid junk, to take on that which prevents them from having a relationship with God. So King Jesus, when he enters the scene, this is the first time we see him in the New Testament. When he enters the scene, he doesn't enter the scene with a band playing on the hillside. He doesn't enter the scene with this entourage of of carpet and and, and pomp and circumstance playing. You realize that a high school senior walking across graduation stage receives more honor than Jesus did at his first uh, exposure to the public in his ministry? Jesus is standing in this filth, symbolic filth, of these people's came for a mission. Jesus' mission was to glorify God the Father by suffering and dying for the sins of his children. To take on the sin at the cross for God's wrath and God's fury to be poured out against that sin. And even on the cross becomes our sin. So this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus' mission is all about. This is why Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. He didn't just wade in it, you know, walk around in it. He didn't ask John to just pour it over his hands and pour it over his arms. But he had Jesus, he had John fully immerse him into this water, symbolically taking on the sin of the people, totally being This was Jesus' mission. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, my mission, my purpose is to come and to seek and to save the lost. So the very first thing that Jesus does is he symbolically shows what he's here for. And don't miss this. This is symbolic. I know I've said that word a lot intentionally because the sin is put on Jesus on the cross. But this symbolically shows what he is here to do. He came for mission the sin of God's elect from those who believe on Jesus. Man, this is a big deal. Sin separates us from God, and sin must be removed by God in order for us to be rescued by God. And this is what Jesus came to do. Man, as crazy as this sounds, the holy, righteous God coming and being placed in this, this symbolic sin, this symbolic putrid filth of these people as crazy as that is as crazy as this this opening introduction to jesus man it gets a little bit crazier verse 10 says and when he came up out of the water 
immediately he saw the heavens torn open. Picture the sky with me. Okay, we still see in the scene in our head like this, this mob being baptized, Jesus, the Lamb of God in there, taking on the sin symbolically of the people, and the heavens being ripped open. Now, in the original language, this doesn't sound flowery, kind of like it might sound in English. This is a very literal issue. The heavens themselves are ripped open. This is the exact same word that Mark uses later in Mark chapter 15 when he, Jesus is dying on the cross. He dies. Jesus says, it is finished. He gives up his spirit. And in the temple, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. It's the exact same word. So either it's literal or it's figurative. I, I, it sounds very literal. So the heavens themselves are split open. This is, this is amazing. When Jesus, by obedience, goes and identifies with sinful man, man, something big happens. God opens up. He splits open the heavens. And the Bible says, and uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. Now, this is like a dove. It's a simile. If you've got English lovers out there, this is not an actual dove. It was the very Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity is descending on Jesus. In fact, uh, the literal translation of this word on is not like on top of. It's actually into Jesus. And so this is the Spirit of God coming and joining himself into the flesh of Jesus. Now, Jesus was already God before this. Let's make sure we don't misunderstand that. There's some people that believe that this is when Jesus became God. That's not the reality of what happened. Jesus was God from eternity past already. But the Spirit of God unites himself, fills the flesh of Jesus in this moment, becoming, uh, in, in enabling Jesus to face the things, enabling Jesus' flesh, if you will, to face the things that he's about to face. Think what Jesus is about to face. Next week, Richard's going to preach about the temptations from the devil. For 40 days, Jesus doesn't eat or drink. And he's tempted every single day or the, during these 40 days by the devil. Then your flesh must be strong for that. Jesus continues his ministry. And in some three and a half short years, he is, he is crucified for the sin of the world. His flesh is torn from him. And so the Holy Spirit is descending into him like a dove. I, I think Mark uses this term like a dove to, to revert back to something in the Old Testament. If you remember, in the Journey Kids are actually learning this today, the, the, story, the, the account of the flood. And when the water receding, sent out a dove, at, at, as well as some other things, but sent out a dove. And at one point, the dove returned with an olive branch in his mouth, showing that the waters were receding. To this very day, an olive branch is a sign, as a result of this, of peace. You've ever heard the term, like, extend an olive branch to somebody or, or something along those lines? It comes from this passage in Genesis where the, the dove returns with this olive branch. And so a vivid reminder that Mark gives these persecuted Christians and gives us today that Jesus Christ came to bring peace to those who are far from God. And just as we sang about, he will never fail us. He was lifted up. He defeated the grave. He is raised to life. He is, our God is able. In his name we have overcome, for the Lord our God is able. But that's not even the end of this scene. So we've got Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, coming out, identifying with the people, with the sin, standing where sinners stood. We have heaven opening up, the Spirit of God descending into Jesus. And then this last part here in verse 11. 
and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is one of the few times in the New Testament where the silence of, of heaven is broken and God the Father's voice breaks through and speaks. God the Father, the first member of what we call the Trinity, he speaks up and declares his pleasure in his son. You know, this happens again in Mark chapter 9. But here, God is directly speaking to Jesus. And in fact, this is, in fact, he says, in, again, in the original language, he's saying, you, yourself, you right there. This is very emphatic. As opposed to these other, you are my son. He's making it very clear of his pleasure in Jesus. But how was Jesus able to please the Father? It's impossible to please the Father in this way unless Jesus was perfect and righteous and as holy as God the Father was. It's impossible to bring pleasure to God apart from that. So Jesus was already as righteous as God was. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 clearly tells us that Jesus didn't have to reach out. He didn't have to grasp to be equal with God because he already was equal with God. So this is God the Father declaring his pleasure and his love towards his son because his son was as equally holy and righteous as he was and he was there symbolically taking on the sin of these people, foreshadowing what Jesus would do some three and a half years later on the cross of Calvary. God the Father was declaring his pleasure with the obedience of his son and the purity of his son. Man, the Holy Trinity is on the scene here. We've got God the Son in the pool, in the, in the river, taking on the sin symbolically of the people. We've got the Spirit descending into Jesus, and we've got God the Father declaring over top of all this, and this is what I'm talking about. This is my Son. You right there, you are my beloved. But when, think about some of the other times when the Holy Trinity like this was on the scene. Man, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 1 when the creation of the world happened. And when the creation of the world, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit were on the scene making something brand new out of nothing, what we call the cosmos, creation. As a matter of fact, they spoke to themselves and said, let us make man in our image. They're speaking to themselves, the, the, the Trinity is. And so right here, right off the bat, like Mark doesn't waste any time going in through some genealogies and stuff, which are important, which are good, but he cuts straight and he says, the Trinity is on the scene doing something big again. This is something huge. Jesus has come to identify with sinners. The Holy Spirit has come down to descend into him, and the voice from heaven, God the Father himself, is declaring his pleasure in his Son. Right out the chute, Mark makes this clear. The perfect Son of God is standing where the sin of our the people had been symbolically taken Sky is ripping open. The Spirit descends, and the Father speaks up. And so here's the big picture. Even our journey marker today, if you're new with us, what we do with these journey markers, like if we could just try to have one simple idea to walk away with, to kind of dwell on for the rest of the week. And here is, and this, and this doesn't give credit to the big, the big picture, but it's the best I could do. Jesus stood where you stood. So you can sit where he 
6. Listen, the book of Ephesians, there's no accident that we went through Ephesians before we started here. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God makes us alive in Jesus. And he sits us in Christ in the heavenlies. Because Jesus came and identified, because Jesus stood where we stand, because Jesus stood in our sin, he took our sin on him, we are able to be drawn by God into a relationship with him. Man, can you see this? Can you see Jesus standing there on the Jordan, taking the place, standing in the sin symbolically? Can you see him setting the tone for the rest of his ministry on earth? Can you see Mark trying to paint this big picture? That's a picture that's so big, it's, it's, it's tough to grasp it all. Man, far too often, we leave this text more focused on whether Jesus was dunked or sprinkled than on the reality of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is on the scene, standing where sinners stood, symbolically immersing himself into their sin, foreshadowing his mission on the cross. And in that moment of great pleasure by God the Father, heaven rips open, the Spirit of God comes and fills Jesus' flesh, and the Father says, this is what I'm talking about. This is my Son. This is what we're here to do. And don't miss this. Don't miss the, the forest for the trees, if you will. I think it's important for us to figure out the details. <clears throat> don't get me wrong, but Mark seems to fly past so many of those details and get to the meat, the big picture of God's redemptive plan. And where the Trinity has shown up and where God is about to start all new with this thing of grace, this thing of mercy. So what does that mean for us as we wrap this thing up? I'm going to take a quick sip of water because I feel like I'm about to cough. <clears throat> what does this mean for us as we wrap this thing up, as we're walking through this testimony of, that Mark has written about Jesus' life? Man, in this river, Jesus symbolically took on the sin of the people. As I've been saying, some three and a half years later, he will, in reality, take on the sin of the people. As Jesus hung on the cross, every single sin of every single person who would believe in him was placed on Jesus. Every single lie, every single adultery, every single lust, every single selfish act, every single sin was placed on Jesus. The full measure of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. The cross absorbed Every single drop of God's fury against sin of those who would believe. Jesus then carried that sin away. Carrying it, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. Carrying it away forever. Jesus died in our place. He died in order to pay the sin that you and I committed. Three days later, Jesus proved that. He was God. He demonstrated that he was God by coming back to life. Now, if Jesus is really God, then coming back from the dead isn't that big of a deal. It's like a, it's, it's child's play if he is, in fact, God. And today, God draws men and women, boys and girls to himself. He draws to himself those to reveal to him then the depth of God's mercy, the depth of his grace. He draws to himself as he feels. Two says, by making them alive in Christ and giving us a new life to replace the old that had died because of our sin. 
Because God is so rich in his grace, so rich in his mercy, he makes us alive in him, and he even gives us the faith needed to trust in him. Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this, this whole thing, this whole thing of salvation, of being born again, it's not of you. It is a work of God. This is grace at work. God rescuing sinners. And is he drawing you this morning to himself? Has he been drawing you for some time and this morning? It's just clear as all clear. You see the sky opening, if you will, and you see, man, this is too good to be true. Man, just this last week in community group, we were sharing some testimonies of just about how, how we came to Christ and, and how God did just miraculous works in us. And all throughout the room, the living room, man, just person after person just testified to how God drew them to himself. Many of them, most of them were, were completely, uh, cl- like, they weren't even looking for God. I think one uh, of the guys said, man, I, had, I wasn't looking for God, man, God was looking for me. I mean, that's the reality of how this thing works. Listen, no one, Paul says, is searching or seeking God. You can't seek God. We're dead. But God is seeking you, you, you. Until God makes us alive, and we're not going to worship him. We're not going to believe in him. We're not going to trust him. This is grace. He makes us alive. Is he drawing you this morning? Man, if he is, talk about it. Like, you want to just have a short little conversation about it? Man, I'd love to. Here in a moment, actually, Craig's going to go ahead and get set up. We're going to close this service out with just a time of worship, okay? This isn't like, you remember, like, growing up, like, you had, like, the invitation song at the end, you know, that kind of deal. Like, this isn't, I mean, it's kind of like that, but it, but it isn't. This is an opportunity for us all to respond in worship. We're about to sing a song titled, um, you alone can rescue. And if you believe Jesus has saved you from your sin, he has rescued you from the penalty that you deserve, man, this is a time for you and for me to engage in worship of this, of this God who has rescued you. But if he hasn't, man, listen, we'd love to talk with you. If he's drawing you to him, man, we'd like to have a conversation with you. And come and ask questions. Can't guarantee that we'll answer every single one just perfectly. There's no stupid question. Let, let's talk. And if you're a believer, I encourage you to worship as we sing this. If you're really dying to know, you know, how this passage specifically pertains to our baptism, our water baptism, and if you should get baptized and all those kinds of things, um, here's my take on that. And I don't want us to get distracted from the big picture on this small detail. But here's what I see happening. Jesus' baptism symbolically immersed him in our sin. But Jesus then became our sin on the cross. We become Christ's righteousness at our new birth, at salvation. And then after salvation, we symbolically are baptized, immersed in the water, showing what happened, what God did for us in our hearts and our lives. So that's what I see happening. Jesus symbolically taking on our sin, then on the cross, he literally took on our sin. We, we become alive in Christ. We take on Christ's righteousness. And then we let the world know through our water baptism, this is what happened on the inside. That's why on November 17th, we're having our very first baptism service at the YMCA Park, at Crozet Park, 
uh, that afternoon after our morning service. Because we want to give the opportunity for those who have been radically saved by a gracious God to declare to the world, and this is what happened on the inside. This isn't what saves me, this water bath, but this is what happened to me. Yesterday, or two years ago, or ten years ago, whenever. But it's a declaration to the world, a symbolic declaration to the world of what Jesus has done. The only prerequisite that I know of for water baptism is having rescued by God from the and exercising the faith that God gives you, trust in Jesus, and turn from your sin. If you're interested in being baptized, you want to come and talk about that, then we'll talk with you about that. There's a sign-up sheet that you said on the back. Got questions, get answers. But I pray that we don't lose sight, even in that short discussion, of this big picture of what's happening. Let's don't lose sight of the billions and billions of stars, the trillions and trillions of stars, after cha- just because of chasing some little tiny flashing airplane. So don't get, let's don't lose sight of what's happening. Jesus is on the scene, symbolically taking on the sin of, the, of, of those who would believe. The heavens split and open. God the Father sends the Spirit to empower the flesh of Jesus. And God the Father says, here we go. Buckle up, because we're going on a ride. This is my son, whom I love. I'm well pleased. Do you realize that when when God makes you alive in Christ, the same thing about you. He says, you are now my child, my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his grace, because of his mercy. No matter how deep you you are in your sin, no matter how depraved you are in your wickedness, thank God's grace is deeper still. Is God drawing you to himself this morning? Let's just go ahead and stand. And enter in time of prayer, of worship. I'm going to pray over us. Then we're going to pass our offering baskets. And you have the opportunity, if you want, to put your offering in or put your, your guest card in. But if you want to come and talk, Richard and I will be up here, but... If you want to just stay at your seat and just worship in response to this ridiculously amazing opening to this of Mark. John the Baptist is taking the, symbolically the sins off and Jesus stands in that. Jesus stood where you stood so that you could sit where he sits. Father, I just thank you for this morning. <clears throat> God, I thank you for each one who is here. God, I know that many are out because of this same stuff that I've got going on. God, I thank you for those who are here. God, I just pray that your glory would be revealed, your power, your majesty would be made known to your people this morning. God, I pray that you would draw men to you. You promised that if you be lifted high, you would draw men to yourself. God, we pray that happen today. God, for those who are born again, those who do believe in you, Father, I pray that, Father, we would press in further to the reality of who you'd have declared us as righteous as we sit where Jesus sits because he stood where we stood. God, let us not get distracted by the details of life. They are so many. 
But God, help us to keep the big picture in mind. You rescue.